Did you know 90% of top performers have a high emotional intelligence and a higher than average annual income? As one of the most highly valued skill sets, emotional intelligence or EI is what distinguishes outstanding leaders. Deepen your EI skills today with the Daniel Goleman Emotional Intelligence course, a 12-week online course to develop your inner capacity, become a stellar leader, and build high-performance teams. Save your seat and $50 with the coupon code PODCAST. Learn more at courses.keystepmedia.com. That's courses.key stepmedia.com. Don't forget to enter coupon code PODCAST at checkout for $50 off your registration. What is money and what do you use it for? Money is something you use to buy stuff you need and sometimes what you want, like Pokemon cards and games. How does money work? There is a factory that makes and prints money. Then they do stuff with it. How do people make money? You have to work hard. (laughs) Have you ever made money? What are some things you've done to earn money? I do my chores to earn money. I put away laundry and I dust the shelves and on top of the microwave. What's the first feeling you have when you walk into a store and you know you've got all of your chore money saved up? Like if you're at Target when you're looking to buy Pokemon cards, how do you feel? I'm excited and I hope they have them. How would you feel if you did see Pokemon cards on the shelf but you couldn't buy them? I would be sad because I can't get them. are listening to First Person Plural, Emotional Intelligence and Beyond. I'm Hanuman Goldman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Goldman and Elizabeth Solomon. Hello, Dan. Hello, Liz. Well, hello. Hello, Hanuman. We are in a three-episode arc on the topic of reimagining capitalism. In part one, we spoke to Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson about her vision for a future version of capitalism that is more sustainable, equitable, and just. In part two, we spoke with a social entrepreneur, Ismail Samad, about re-envisioning a system that can build generational wealth within communities of color. Today, I'm particularly excited that we're featuring a first-person perspective from two Western Massachusetts co-op representatives. Ruthie Woodring from The Petal People, and Trenda Lofton from The Compost Cooperative. They join us for a connections conversation about the benefits and challenges of co-op work and inspire us to think about how we can operate outside the traditional capitalist structure and provide workers an owner track. Have either of you ever been a part of a co-op before, either as an employee or perhaps a member? Well, um, I've been a member of a couple of co-ops Starting in my uh, graduate school days, there was a, a co-op. It was called the Coop, but it's co-op uh, at um, in Harvard Square, and uh, it it was basically a business. But we did get back every year, I think, a, a portion of what we had spent there. Uh, and then uh, when I lived in Western Massachusetts, I was a member of River Valley. It's a an organic uh, grocery store uh, and uh, worker owned, I think. I was a member, but I've never actually worked in a co-op. How many of you? I've not. I've not worked in a co-op. I've been members of of uh, also the River Valley Co-op, and my family started a co-op. Uh, my mother, my sister, my sister-in-law, my wife, um, and a few other folks. Uh, were all uh, the founding members of Co-op 108, which was uh, body uh, oils and and uh, good things for your skin, sort of a co-op. And it was really it was interesting to to watch them go through the process and navigate the co-op world. When our first child Sujata was in diapers, we were doing um, 
we weren't doing disposable diapers. We were doing washable cloth diapers and the pedal people provided a service at that point. Um, they, they joined up with uh, a diaper provider, local diaper provider. So the pedal people would collect the dirty diapers and bring a stash of new clean diapers. And so Ruthie was actually our pedal person who, who delivered and uh, took away our diapers. So she was a very meaningful person for us at that point in our world. That was a big service. It meant a lot to us then. And they also, when in our office, uh, did the trash pickup for, or the recycling pickup for us rather. Pedal people is named that because they don't use cars. They use bikes. They pedal all, everywhere. They do. And I will tell you that I live in the same town where the pedal people are. And I see them pedaling in the middle of a New England winter, like close to zero degrees outside, um, hauling compost and trash. So as we launch into this interview, I just want to cite that because these people deserve such a major shout out um, from the community and the world for sort of forwarding not only co-op structures, but recycling and sustainability efforts and really going up against the elements to make that happen. Dude, they're hardcore. Every weather, every weather. And they're riding right alongside the cars. And uh, and when I go to the dump, they're always there, like dropping the stuff off. They are super hardcore in this town. So like we've been saying I've had some experience with the pedal people before, and I've known Trenda for years and love and respect her, but I don't know a lot about the compost cooperative. And I'm super excited to hear what these two co-ops have to share with one another. If one system can communicate with another system, we can both learn from each other and also see where we might support one another. And so I'm, I'm really super excited to hear this conversation with Ruthie and Trenda. So yeah, I'm Ruthie Woodring. I'm part of Pedal People Cooperative, which is based in Northampton, Massachusetts. And we're like a 22, 23 member worker cooperative that hauls trash. We haul trash, recycling, compost, all by bicycle with bicycle trailers in the city of Northampton, East Hampton, Lawrence, Leeds. And we started in 2002. So in Northampton, population of about 30,000 in Western Mass, there's no municipal trash service. So the city doesn't have any trucks going around picking stuff up. It's up to individual residents to figure out how to deal with their waste. And so um, that was where we started. Um, at the time, it was my friend Alex Jarrett and I back in 2002, we started it thinking, well, hey, we can take our own trash and recycling on our bikes and our bike trailer. Maybe other people will pay us to take theirs because um, people at that time were paying just privately finding a trucking company. There were like two main other trucking companies at that time. So then people started started paying us. So. So, yeah, so the, the trash and recycling hauling, compost hauling is the main thing. Um, we pick up for over a thousand customers and we take it to one of two transfer centers, both transfer centers, they're on opposite ends of town, but they're all within three miles of the farthest customers. So we're not going that far with the stuff. Um, we also do yard care uh, with electric mowers and string trimmers and leaf raking by hand with the equipment hauled on bicycle and bike trailer. And we have a contract with the city where we empty the downtown trash barrels. We started that contract in 2007. Um, so seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, pretty much. We go down Main Street with a big bike trailer. It's like a two hour shift, usually done in the morning between six and eight. And the pedal person will pull all the trash bags out of the, out of the bins. There's like 80 some trash and recycling bins. And, oh, we do the bike lab. It's on Saturdays. Most Saturdays, it's a bike repair workshop where people can learn to fix their bike. We do general moving and hauling. Like if people want to want their furniture moved across town, it's pretty easy to put that stuff on a bike trailer. I mean, it may take more trips than a truck, but it's uh, totally doable if you're not going too far. Ruthie, I'm so excited that we're having this conversation. I had no idea that like half of the other things that y'all are up to that's incredible that y'all are 
you know, supporting yard work and moving and that you have a contract with, with the city. Uh, that's so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So hello, everyone. My name is Trenda Lofton. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm with the Compost Cooperative, um, a worker-owned co-op based in Greenfield, Massachusetts, but we work uh, throughout Franklin County um, and beyond a little bit. Um, and I'm super excited to be a part of this conversation. Um, the Compost Cooperative uh, got started really about five years ago, um, developed inside of the Franklin County Jail uh, with folks incarcerated there, um, educators from the community and other community members, um, really to address the issue that folks were facing um, post-release once being released from, um, from jail or prison, finding employment was a challenge. And so inside of that facility is where Compost Cooperative was dreamed up, was designed. Um, and about three years ago, we launched. And now we, hold, uh, we haul food scraps for residential, commercial, and uh, institutional customers uh, to help divert food waste from the landfills. So one of the one of the things that that makes me think of um, is like when we're as we're kind of talking and thinking about um, like what are what are the big projects that we've been working on in our co-ops? Um, we're really looking to um, establish a relationship with the city of Greenfield um, to be able to offer a curbside pickup for for the city. Um, you know, a lot of places here will have a place where people can drop off their compost. Um, and that just doesn't work for everybody. Um, so I know that really being able to provide that door-to-door -door service can really increase people's access um, to composting and recycling and um, hauling trash more responsibly. So um, I love that that we're in relationship. I often think about the pedal people and compost co-op as sibling co-ops. Um, so that's really exciting to me. Yeah, is Greenfield similar to Northampton where there's no municipal trash recycling or compost pickup? Everyone has to figure out themselves how to deal with it. Yeah, that's right. So as you know, the compost cooperative is really anchored in uh, providing living wage, meaningful work for folks impacted by incarceration. Um, and not just living wage, meaningful work, but also ownership opportunities, right? As a worker co-op, um, the hope is that everyone that engages with us can see themselves on that path to ownership um, so that we're really... Um, cultivating those collective decisions. Um, so I got involved with the Compost Cooperative um, because I had a relationship with, with a current member um, through our work at the Franklin County Jail. Um, and so uh, one of the things I do is I'm a theater artist. Um, and so I had the opportunity to go and lead a workshop uh, with what was called the Think Tank or what is called the Think Tank um, at the jail. And so through sort of um, my commitment to, to engaging, engaging the system in that way. Um, I heard about the compost co-op uh, since before it was born, exactly, um, and have always been a huge fan of the work. So I sort of got into it in the beginning because I was going to come in and like help support the social media, um, but really quickly learned that um, in addition to barriers to meaningful work um, for folks coming out of jail and prison, um, there was a significant lack of accessible, safe, and affordable housing um, for folks who carry records, right? Um, so that is actually the point that I dove really deeply into the co-op and really saw myself on the worker owner track. So I've been leading our housing initiative um, since last year when we embarked on um, 
you know, essentially crowdsourcing a house. Uh, so we bought um, a house in partnership with another co-op Oxbow Design Build, um, a house that was in complete disrepair. Uh, we're remodeling it um, to include an additional unit so that in addition to work, we can provide access to housing. Um, so Ruthie, you shared a little bit um, about how you got started. Um, what's kept you in it? Um, well, I just love being physical and biking and finding trash treasures, <laughs> being on the community and talking with people. Um, when Alex and I first started it in 2002, I had just moved to Northampton. I was living in Chicago before that for about nine years. And um, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky where it's really mountainous and things are spread out. And so as a kid, I was in put in cars and driven many places and got car sick all the time. And so as a kid, I, I, I always dreamed about like another way. And when I was 18, one of my older sisters told me about bike messengers in Chicago. And I was like, no, you can't get paid to ride a bike. I thought she's pulling my leg. And then when I was 19, I moved to Chicago and didn't end up getting a job as a bike messenger. But, you know, went, and, and, and I like the riding part of the work, but I'd be like, okay, I'm delivering packages for Amco Oil one day and protesting them the next. And I, it just was felt very much like a cog in the system that was hustling and risking my life and making $6 an hour. Um, and so I, I wish I was like, oh, I wish I could start my own bike business, but I, I just didn't have like the business skills I didn't know the right people yet, but when I moved to Northampton, then I met Alex and I was like, what? The city doesn't pick up trash. Um, well, well, maybe we can. And so um, Alex has more of the business mind and, and he's just, he's just really smart in business ways and people ways and people communication. He's a really good listener and those kinds of cooperative people skills, which leads me to another thing about, about cooperatives and, and, the great thing about cooperatives is like, hopefully you can try and bring people into the cooperative who have skills you don't. Um, and that, I think that's one of the keys to a successful cooperative is having that kind of diversity of, of, of skills coming in. We started very small, just one customer. You know, the first day we started, we went and picked up one customer's trash. Um, but, but since we didn't have the investment of like, you know, a truck, like you will have a truck and like those expenses, I'm like, oh, that seems a little stressful. But for us, we didn't have any overhead. We already rode our own bikes and used that trailer. So we were able to grow really slowly and incrementally and never had any, any debt. Um, but yeah, what's kept me in it. I just, I just love it. I just like being physical and the freedom that I feel. And then there's also a lot of flexibility with my time, with my schedule, like days that I'm working, I have a certain amount of pickups to do and I've got like an eight hour window to do five hours worth of work and I'm not on the clock. We get paid by the job so I can do whatever I want during my day. And then also like now I'm in Kentucky where I grew up spending some time with my family and I have that kind of job flexibility too. Yeah. I love so much of what you're, what you're sharing Ruthie, right? Because, you know, I, early in, in your story, I heard you talk about that conflict, right. Of, being a cog in a system, I think is what I heard you say. And like, what does it mean to be doing work because we have to, because we live in a capitalistic society that requires us to have money, <laughs> right? Um, with the desire to do something that fulfills us, right? Whether it's that physical activity fulfillment, that mental stimulation fulfillment, that you know, the combination and the ways that those actually really interact. And then that power of, of cooperation, right? And recognizing that we don't have to do it all. Um, and that's also part of what I really appreciate um, about working cooperatively and working really intentionally cooperatively and non-hierarchic, I can never say the word, non-hierarchically, uh, um, you know, because I think that, um, you know, the way we work in the compost co-op, and I imagine it's quite similar for you all, is like, we recognize the value that every single person brings, their perspective, their life experiences, their ideas, um, their feedback, all of that is 
um, not only hoped for, <laughs> um, not only encouraged, but built into our systems, right? So that when we meet every week or, or biweekly or monthly based on, you know, folks' level of involvement, you know, there is always that time for check-in, right? Like, how are you today? <laughs> for real, for real, let's check in because that's important, right? Um, what are you noticing? right? And through the lens that you're moving with, what are you noticing in the work? What are you noticing in community and community response? Um, and, and where can we grow, improve, strengthen? Um, where do we need to slow down? Which I think is, is one of the core differences for me, and I'm still working on it. I'll be honest, you know, I've, I've been very much trained in the capitalistic system to be like, oh, how can I do this most efficiently and, you know, make money so I can support myself. Um, but really learning how to shift the thinking that sometimes what needs to happen is slowing down. Um, and that always what needs to be happening is prioritizing people. Um, people needs, which includes, right? Like, yeah, we've got to think about profit, <laughs> right? In the sense of like, people are de depending on this work for livelihood, right? So it is important that we are thinking about like, you know, what are our expenses and what's our income and all of that. They don't, it doesn't have to be separate, per se, but we can choose what we're prioritizing, right? Um, it's not about like, we would need to make sure everybody gets $50,000 for their owner's share at the end of the year. It's like, how can we make sure everyone that's involved with us, you know, has, um, has access to food, to housing, to rest, <laughs> um, and to that flexibility you spoke of, Ruthie, right? Like, oh, what does it mean if we have a system that's strong enough that someone can take some time to go be with family, you know, and not just because an emergency has come up, but because like that is also a part of our well-being. Yeah. When we first started Pedal People, that was one of my big fears was what am I going to have to be here every Wednesday for the rest of my life to pick up people's trash? And I didn't go anywhere for about two years. And it was probably about five years into it before I really felt like I had the freedom. Now, like 18 years into it, I feel like I really have the freedom I want. <laughs> but I, to go back to what you say about growth, that's so important because we have this, this, this sort of cultural assumption that growth is good. But with pedal people, um, people ask us a lot, when are you going to expand into this place? Or when are you going to start a business in this place? And we're like, well, we all live like right here in Western Mass and the Northampton kind of area. Like if someone else wants to start something where they live, we can try and support it. Um, so when COVID hit, things got really hard for us because, I mean, it's, it was a bad problem to have. We had so much business because for one, people are home making more trash and we do more residential pickups than commercial office business pickups. And so they're home making all this trash. They're ordering online. There's cardboard boxes out the wazoo. There's um, people are moving to Northampton, to Western Mass from Boston and New York with money to be able to afford our services. And then like if we had worker health scares where maybe someone was sick and we had to quarantine and get tested and take days off, we actually are waitlisting customers right now. Um, we can't hire fast enough to keep up with the customers that want our service. But even before COVID though, that was always a discussion, like how much energy do we want to put into growth? Um, because as a cooperative that values human relationships, like you can't just go out and hire five people. <laughs> um, it's, it's a process, you know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like when I, when I think about one of the challenges that comes up with like moving cooperatively, right? That's one of the key challenges that comes to mind for me, right? Like how do you move at a pace, right? That allows you to do what you are wanting to do 
and needing to do while also keeping the the relationship at the core right and the intention at the core I don't know how it is for you but you know for us it's never like submit this one page standard application form and you too can become a worker owner you know it's like you know no we're gonna give multiple modalities for folks to apply with us right because not everyone is sitting down and filling out a google form you know that's not gonna necessarily give you this greatest sense of someone's strength um how align is someone with our mission right like do you feel committed to, you know, striving to be an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, cooperative business? Um, and, you know, it, we don't need you to know all the lingo, <laughs> right? Because I, I recognize even as I say that, right? Like, oh, yeah, there's some privileges that I hold, right? You know, a degree or, a, you know, I've studied that sort of thing, you know, so we're not looking for someone to come in and be like, oh, yeah, I can speak the language and do the thing. But we are looking for a commitment uh, to, to being willing to learn. Right. Um, some basic levels of like, yeah, I value humanity. Yeah, I recognize that, like, I've moved through a world where, like, there are places where I've had privileges and places I've had disadvantages. Um, and other folks share some of those experiences. Um, so as we're thinking about business design <laughs> and the challenges of trying to do things differently than you know, what has been set out, some of it is like, how do we find the right people? How do the right people find us? right? I imagine this has been one of y'all's considerations. I know our work is like, it is physical, period. We're like lugging buckets that are like 20, 30 pounds, you know, dumping them by hand, then tipping barrels that are like upwards of 200, 300 pounds. You know, there's like a sincere physical demand and we're not riding bikes. <laughs> you know, we have a truck and we just got a bigger truck, right? <laughs> yeah. One of my coworkers went on the route with a compass cooperative member and, and my coworker was like, whoa, that's way harder than what we do. <laughs> Interesting. And I see y'all biking in all weather and I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh my, you know, people standing up on the pedals, like going up the hill. I think it's on Locust Street. And I'm like, oh. Oh, the work, the work, you know. Um, so one of the things we're really thinking about is how do we make our, our cooperative also accessible for people whose bodies don't allow them to do that kind of labor, right? Um, while recognizing that we're not interested in having different tiers of work, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious about that for you and the Compost Cooperative, because like in Pedal People, all 20 some members, I think there's only one now who doesn't, but basically all of us do hauling routes or yard care as well as administrative work. Um, but with Compost Cooperative, like how many members are there and what are the different roles that members are doing? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so currently we have um, two worker owners and four others who are involved. We're in like a transition point, um, which is both really exciting um, and also nerve wracking, but it feels like sort of that, that opportunity again to fine tune systems, right? We're a baby business. You know, if you're not past five years, like you're still kind of holding on for dear life. This is a bicycle reference, I guess. Yeah, and so I think that there's, um, the, in terms of different roles, um, right now we all haul. Um, we all haul. Um, and then the two of us that are currently the worker owners are the ones that, that really kind of hold down that administrative component. Um, and my colleague uh, and dear friend, Revan, is uh, actually the, the lead on most things admin. Um, and then we are 
really excited about getting to know people and seeing what their strengths are and what they want to bring. So we have um, we have some new folks, right? And part of our process uh, when it comes to like, you know, joining, becoming a worker owner essentially, right, is uh, you're interviewed when we agree to move forward. You then have a three-week sort of exploratory period, we'll call it, um, where you haul with us, you might attend a meeting, we just get to know each other's flow a little bit. And in that time, we're also asking questions about like, what are you wanting to bring? You know, what skills are you wanting to develop? Um, where do you see you being able to maybe take some leadership, right? So right now, we're really excited. We have one person who's joined us who's like, I'm really into trauma-informed approaches. So we're like, amazing, because we're trying to be trauma-informed always, right? We have another person who's like, I have a history of like being a photographer and a videographer, and it's like fantastic. So we sort of, in that process of getting to know each other, pull out what people's roles might be. Um, and then move forward. So after that initial exploratory period, three weeks or so, um, if, you know, we all agree that moving forward is the right path, then we'll go to the, um, the apprenticeship period. Um, and that can be, you know, three to six months long, it might be longer, depending on where folks are at and where folks are feeling. Um, and then that's where that ownership opportunity really opens up. So the six of you that are involved, the you said two are full members. Are the other four, are they any of them in the apprenticeship period or just long-term supporting? Tell me more about that structure and the power dynamics. Yeah, sure. Um, so two of them are in the process of um, moving to the worker owner track um, in that apprenticeship period. And um, one of them is still in the exploratory period. Um, so it's an exciting period, or two of them are rather. Um, but we attend meetings together and it's almost like there's not a huge difference. And I have one question for the both of you that is specifically in your areas, being that you're both cooperatives in similar areas of focus, but not quite exactly the same. Your models are structured slightly differently, it sounds like. What are the individual challenges that you've seen over the last 18 years and five years that you've run into when it comes to operating kind of outside of that typical capitalistic hierarchical model uh, of doing things? And, And what are some of the benefits that come from actually operating outside of that as well? Well, I'm thinking about the question about like highs and lows and say one of the lows has been how to deal with interpersonal conflict. Um, Specifically, we had a situation where a full cooperative member and someone that wasn't a full member, but was somewhere between being a well, they were, we had this third category for a long time called subs, people, people who didn't want to be members, but were kind of trained. If someone got sick and we couldn't find a member to cover, they could step up. So there was someone that was in the sub role and someone that was a full member role. And they had a baby together and had a custody battle. And it got really ugly. And we just, it's still, there's still bad vibes from that. And that was probably three years ago. Um but that was like really difficult trying to figure out, okay, who's got the decision-making power here and how do we be fair to all parties? And ultimately the one that's the collective member, the full member, ultimately that's the one that has the biggest say in general for me in a cooperative, the hardest, the hardest things are probably around accountability, especially with a conflict averse group. (laughs) Um, yeah, we all are accountable for ourselves, but then you know, how do you give feedback to other people? And if something, if nothing changes about their work and it really needs to change, then what are those, what are the structures, the steps to deal with that in a productive way? Yeah. Mm, that interpersonal component. Um, 
you know, I wouldn't say that my response is that different in terms of um, the, the interpersonal nature of the challenge, because I think that one of the biggest challenges is helping other people really understand that we really are working outside of traditional hierarchy, right? We really are aiming to work outside of, of, um, capitalism, particularly extractive capitalism, right? Um, I think it is important to make that, make that distinction there. Um, you know, it's put some limitations on us, right? Um, I think there's, there's the people expect there to be a hierarchy. And so what often will happen is they choose who's ever doing the admin, as the person who is absolutely in charge, right? Um, and they, you know, and then there might be the people in the middle. Um, so the people who are doing the hauling are the ones who are treated with like the least amount of respect and are treated like they, they don't have decision-making power. Um, so I think one of the biggest challenges is other people's perception of us, right? And then the only other piece I would I would add to that, I think, is that, you know, we often don't have access to traditional modes of capital, right? Of money. Because we're not a nonprofit, though we are mission driven driven and collaborate with with um, nonprofits um, on occasion so we can receive funds, um, but we're not a nonprofit. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's often a disconnect around that. Um, we also, none of us are individually wealthy. So there are times where, you know, we've sought um, finances through more traditional modes like banks and um, credit unions and things. And they're like, well, who's going to personally back this loan? And it's like, that's a good question because tell you who's not, <laughs> you know, so I think, um, but the power, and this is the, the other part of your question, the power of working cooperatively, right, is that no one person has to carry the weight of anything at all, unless you're a single person riding a bike, carrying the weight of all the trash, you know? <laughs> yeah. I want to go back to that strength the strengths of working cooperatively with pedal people. I don't think pedal people would be successful if we weren't a cooperative. Like if you had a boss telling you to get on your bike and go haul 300 pounds of trash on a sloppy winter day, you'd be like, not today, buddy. <laughs> um, maybe, I don't know. But with pedal people, you know, it's the success of the business. We all depend on it, on it, on it for our living. And pretty much everyone that does it, does it because I think everyone that does it, I think does it because they enjoy it. And pedal people almost always say it's the best job they've ever had. Um, uh, yeah, and I think also like as a cooperative, so there's 20 some members of us. And so we all want, you know, we all are in our neighborhoods giving out positive vibes about pedal people, I think. <laughs> and that sort of helps the, the strength of the business and the community. I think one of the other challenges for us specifically, you know, is that we are committed to working with folks who have been incarcerated, right? Who oftentimes are still, you know, tethered one way, you know, whether it's probation or parole, um, there is a certain flexibility that we have to have, right? And there are unique challenges that folks who, who carry records face, right? Trying to move through the world, right? Like, is their parole officer going to call and be like, I need you to come in in the next two hours, you know, or you're going back in, right? This constant kind of threat slash reminder, right? That there is a hierarchy that exists, right? So even if internally we're trying to interrupt that, the truth is, you know, the government wants to know who the owners are and what their social security numbers are right? The, the banks want to know who has the money, 
right? Or who's going to be responsible? The the parole officers want to know, like, where is this person? Are they showing up for work on time? You know, did they go home last night? <laughs> right? So there's this, the reality that we currently live in a larger system that requires us to engage in some level. Um, but the fun of it is like, where are the places we can just do it differently anyway? Um, and I think that that's part of what I see cooperatives being able to do. So if you were to have someone come to you who was interested in starting a co-op like yours or, or of a similar mindset in a different location or a different region in the country, what would your recommendations be to them? How would you advise that they get started? First of all, I would say check out the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Um, they have people you can consult with, a good website and all that, and talk with people who, like you, you can find a listing, like who's involved in worker cooperatives nearest to you, maybe talk with them in person, meet with them. That's my first thought. Yeah, I would say craft your vision. Like, craft your vision without weighing yourself down with the rules and regulations, without weighing yourself down with what you think you can do or can't do, um, or what resources you need. I would say dream first, right? Because I believe truly that what we, what we need in this world hasn't been built yet, you know? I think there's a lot of us that are crafting our dreams and like making some things happen. But I'm like, you know, chances are really good that the vision you have, especially if you craft that vision in community, like cooperatively, I think that that getting really crystal clear around what your intentions are, what your core values are, right? That will help guide you. So then follow Ruthie's suggestion, right? And start doing that research and finding out like, oh, what are other people doing, right? So if you feel stuck in the visioning and you're like, I can't think of an idea, you know, there's always research, right? But if you have something that's burning and stirring inside you and you're like, what if? I'm like, follow that what if, follow that. Um, you know, I've been working with attorneys more in my life than I ever have ever, ever before. And one of the things that they've told me, and I'm like, hmm, that's interesting, is don't worry about the law yet, right? Part of their job is to figure out how to make it work. So, you know, it's like dream, 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 dream. What's that song? Dream, 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 dream. I think this interview is reminding me um, or just illuminating what an incredible source of motivation ownership is. And it makes me ask the question of when we are living in a world where people have ownership over their workplace, over their job, what, what can we let go of in terms of how we incentivize people, right? And I'm thinking a little bit about my time I spent working with the Great Place to Work Institute and a handful of organizations on um, Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Place to Work list are employee-owned. And when you read the employee comments within these organizations, people are so effusive about their loyalty and commitment, not just to the organization, but to each other, because it just creates this instantaneous sense of like, we're in a team, we're all in this together, and we all have something on the line. It's interesting to me that so many companies uh, are trying to emulate that feeling without necessarily giving the workers the ownership, uh, but they want engagement, they want loyalty, they want people to give their best efforts. And maybe this is something that um, companies in general might consider as a way to incentivize people, which is actually give them a piece of the company. Well, that does happen with uh, shares that, that uh, vest in certain amount of time. So you, you know, 
three years that then I'll then I'll have ownership or something like that. Um, I ran for city council a couple of years ago, and one of the things that was really interesting to me when I began to think about the city system is, uh, or, or systems, is how we can create really explicit tracks for ownership, for people to, uh, for entrepreneurship specifically, I guess, because I, I think there's a, a great creativity in entrepreneurship. And um, and I, I just feel like it's so important that it, the more we can engage a population in that kind of generative thinking, even how, you know, what can I offer to the world and, and how do I do it? The more that those pathways are, are laid out for developing both those sides, what do I have to offer and how do I do it? Uh, I think the better off we'll be. Um, there's also ownership of work, like practically speaking in a business when, when you have a, a supervisor who's really overbearing and controlling over every little aspect of your work, that's taking your ownership out of it. And it's easy to, to develop an attitude like, this isn't my work anyways. I'm not, why would I even bother when this person's telling me how to do every single little thing and, and there's nothing of me in here? Uh, so just, the, I guess ownership happens on a lot of levels too. There's the ownership of the profits. There's a like capital ownership of it. And then there's the ownership of the activity. There's the ownership of the environment that we're, we're sharing and creating together. Liz, you have something exciting to say. Well, I was just thinking I should put a finer point on what I was saying about the Fortune uh, Mag, the 100 Best Places to Work list and those companies that have employee ownership, which is that it's not just about the financial ownership, as you're saying, but in many of those organizations, decision-making is structured in a very different way and employee and communication, right? Up, down, sideways, every direction is structured in a very different way. So people feel very in the loop usually about what's happening and they feel like they have some agency to help inform the direction of the organization. And that to me is like creates a true sense of ownership that's more like the co-op model that we're talking about here, which is that everybody is sort of sitting together um, and, and sitting in a some position of power. There is a really important piece of this that we haven't touched on and that's the letting go of power, of capital. And that's the other side of it. And so, and I think that people don't let go and people, cling to accumulating more one of the reasons is because of fear it's not just greed it's also the fear of not having enough or the fear of of the future conditions changing and and i one of the antidotes for that fear i believe is uh, trusting each other more and trusting that we will all create something that does support everybody, that we don't have to be afraid that if I let go of a little, I will be left in the lurch, that if I let go of a little, we are all going to be doing this together. I, I hear what, this piece about moving away from the, you know, capitalism is sort of a function of individualism in many ways, or that the two, the two systems or ethos feed one another. But the other thing I think about all the time is that the way capitalism works is that the more we make, the more we spend, right? And so you could be making billions of dollars, but if you're making billions of dollars, chances are that your cost of living is so high that there is actually a fear, right? So losing capital feels like I'm losing a home. I'm losing college savings for my grandchildren. I'm losing, right? And so I just want to presence that because I think this is the rub in many ways of, of how we sort of are acculturated to spend money, which is make more, spend more. Um, and that for some people, I don't think it's as simple as just kind of letting go of capital, that capital in the places it's about letting go of so much else because they've funneled that capital into very distinct places. It seems to me that uh, we're really talking about keeping the positive parts of what's been called capitalism, which is, as Ismail is saying, for example, being able to build a business that nurtures people in it, that nurtures the community, but also to uh, guard against somehow the parts of the capitalist system that haven't worked so well, 
which is to look more transparently at what the real impacts are. Rebecca Henderson gave the example of coal uh, and externalities with coal. You know, that's not something that coal companies, for example, will look at, but we need to. And uh, once we can be more transparent about it and also understand the danger of inequities, uh, it may be that the co-op model, the cooperative model will get more traction and spread more widely. Ruthie and Trenda are both leaders. They are creating new systems where old models aren't serving people's needs. The way they're doing it embodies the competencies in Dan's emotional intelligence model. You can learn more about emotional intelligence leadership competencies like organizational awareness, emotional self-control, and empathy in the collection of primers called Building Blocks of Emotional Intelligence. Find it in our store at keystepmedia.com slash shop. Thanks for listening to First Person Plural, EI and Beyond. Subscribe now and sign up for our newsletter to get notified as new episodes are released. This show is brought to you by our co-hosts, Daniel Goleman, Hanuman Goleman, and Elizabeth Solomon, and is sponsored by Keystep Media, your source for personal and professional development materials focused on mindfulness, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Special thanks to Riley, whose voice you heard at the top of the show, and to today's guest, Ruthie Woodring and Trenda Lofton. For guest bios, transcripts, and resources mentioned in today's episode, check out our episode notes on our website, firstpersonplural.com. This episode was written and produced by Elizabeth Solomon and me, Gabriela Acosta. Audio production by Michelle Zipkin. Episode art and production support by Bryant Johnson. Music in this episode includes... Tiny Footsteps in the Snow by Bio Unit and theme music by Amber Ojeda. Until next time, be well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate our show and submit a review. It helps us spread the word about the show. If you want to go the extra mile to support our show, you can become a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can get exclusive access to extended interviews and behind-the-scenes content. Sign up at patreon.com slash firstpersonplural.